Hi guys, Rob here, podcast editor for Everymind. This week, founder Paul speaks to Keith Weinstein from Time to Change. Sadly, after 15 years, Time to Change are closing due to their funds ending. So from Everymind at work, we just want to thank you for all the lives that you've changed and all the lives you are yet to change from all the great work that you've done. If you think Everymind at Work could help your business, then head over to everymindatwork.com to get your free assessment call. If you found this episode valuable, don't forget to share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. And as ever, enjoy the show. So Keith, welcome to the Everymind podcast. How are you? Oh, Paul, it's great to see you. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm really good today because the sun's shining and the sky is blue, which really sort of literally lifts my spirits. Nice. And, and we, we connected. One of um, Frankie from our team said, how do you know, Keith? And I said, it was the Mind Media Awards. And it was a time where I was doing Movember. And I think I walked up to you and another guy and you had these amazing stashes, tashes, and, and I had this feeble little stubble. Um, and, and I kind of, I think that's how we got to know each other, right? I was like, I'm so jealous of your moustache. Literally. But the thing is, though, I love that little tash. Because I thought you looked like, a, I don't know, like a spearball, <laughs> uh, which uh, is probably a dodgy character from the Second World War. But I liked it because it really suited it. And actually, the guy I was with was uh, David Roper uh, from Heavy Entertainment. And he has a fantastic moustache. I mean, it's yeah. outrageous. And David actually um, owns a recording studio. So that's where I used to record the Time to Change podcast. So that's that's why he was there. So when I met you, it all sort of, I don't know, it all seemed to sort of join up together. Really. Yeah, it was, it was a strange one, wasn't it? And I, I'm yeah. where you had a solid, a solid moustache. Oh yeah. I, I would have waxed my moustache and it would have, it would have curled. Yeah. I'd look like a Cheshire cat probably. Yeah. And I think I was wearing um, a gold bow tie and a dinner jacket and all that kind of thing. So quite a posh do but it was lovely lovely to meet you and it was really I mean there were lots and lots of people there it was a, a fantastic night actually a yeah. great night to sort of celebrate the media helping us to get um, get the message across about mental health issues and really help to sort of really smash the stigma that's still around mental health issues Sadly. yeah it was, it was yeah it was the first year that I went and I didn't expect much um a good friend of mine was up for an award and she kind of invited me along and and yeah, I didn't expect to see that many people and that kind of level of an event and and all of that for something around mental health. And then obviously, fortunately, the year after, I, I won an award, the podcast award with MQ. Was you there then? Did we? No, I was like uh, really jealous. Just really had to put that in there. Just had to put that in there. Award. I won the award. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Because I, I worked about, I, I produced about 17 episodes of the Champions podcast. And there's this young kid coming along. He's never done a podcast in his life before, picking up an award. But it sort of made sense because obviously I work for mine. So it would have looked a bit odd. Yeah, you can do one. I know they wanted to give me the award. I really do know they wanted to give me the award. But yeah, of course. Well deserved winner, Paul. Well deserved. Yeah, and I think it was a surprise that none of us expected it. Like Rory, obviously, I think Rory had been in a couple of documentaries that were up for the awards before and had never won and I think yeah, it was it was um it was a nice experience but a really good kind of like time and like I say obviously we, we met there as well but um time to change you know obviously amazing amazing I think initiative um I have to say it's probably in my opinion the best in terms of changing the the conversation around mental health you know for however long it's it's been going and and obviously really really sad news you know that it's kind of kind of ending so i know you've been kind of a pivotal part in that so so how how are you feeling all about it 
Well, I mean, uh, thank you for saying. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it is really sad news. Um, you know, times change will come to an end um, to the end of March 2021. And, you know, it's been going, certainly, um, I, I mean, I joined time to change on the 1st of July 2009 and I think it'd been going for about a year 18 months maybe two years prior to that and when I joined time to change I mean I, I joined as a temp actually to to work um to work on a, a series of events um with the BBC BBC headroom where they'd given us um, an hour's slot on each of their stages they had all these stages in different parts of the country like Hull and East London and places like that uh, Birmingham and the idea was was that they we had an hour to fill with content and so it was a question of trying to find people with lived experience because that was the really important thing because what i wanted was people with lived experience to actually fill that time and when i joined i mean it was the, the work i was working on was all about interacting with physical activity it was called get moving so it was trying to find you know people with lived experience who maybe did keep fit for example like in Hull, there was somebody from Haymind who did a, a like an aerobics class mm. and lots of movement going on. I think we had some royal ballet dancers in London. I mean, we, we you know managed to find all sorts of different people, but it's really interesting because it was a great introduction for me working for Mind in meeting other members of of the team because of course I went to them saying, "Do you know anybody with mental health issues?" And it, mm. and that sounds ridiculous, but of course we're talking about you know two thousand and nine. And even in my own family, you know, we, you know, I come from a family with mental health issues, but we didn't really talk about it. You know, we didn't talk about when my mom was in the psychiatric unit. We didn't really talk about how we felt about that. There was a lot of shame and ignorance. You know, this was in the sort of late 19 sort of 70s. Um, and even my dad, you know, I can remember as, as a kid, my dad had, you know, he was off work for three months with his nerves, but nobody talked about it. So all of this stuff has actually come out over the over the intervening years when I've been working at, at Time to Change. I've suddenly realised, oh my God, you know, not only were we affected personally by mental health issues, but also the stigma um, around talking about it as well as a family. And of course, I've got my own my own lived experience of mental health issues too, which uh, certainly have happened before I went to mine. I mean, I, I think I went grey before I went <laughs> before you know whilst working at Time to Change and Mind. I've been there for quite some time. Um, but the mental health issues, yeah, they, they, they became a problem before I went to mind. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, 2009 is an iconic date for me. You know, that was that was the year that I lost my dad to suicide. And, you know, I kind of talk a lot about specifically, you know, the work we're doing with every mind at work and just 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 mental health in general. You know, if someone came into my dad's workplace in 2007 and shared their personal experience of of, you know, a mental health challenge, how much of an impact that could that have on him or if his business was doing more to to talk about it and to provide support and tools for employees at that time in 2007 again how different would that have been you know for my dad when he had that breakdown in 2009 and you know that kind of leads on to the next question and and I'd love to get your experience on this you know 2009 to now what's the biggest sort of differences that you've seen in terms of you know as we say tackling the stigma and mental health in general oh gosh I mean there have been lots of changes Paul I mean I suppose the key one um at this end of the campaign is um the fact that public figures like members of parliament it's probably about five years or so 
stood up in Parliament, and I think it might have been a Tory actually, was the first one to sort of stand up and say, um, I have a mental health problem. And it, it was a bit like I Spartacus because suddenly, you know, a Labour, you know, member of Parliament stood up, and then a, a, a you know, a Liberal, and then another Tory, and then another Labour. And it was, but that was amazing the fact that they could do that. This is about, it was probably about five or six years into that time to change being active and sort of really working with all sorts of different people um, to really sort of be open and, and talk about their lived experience. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, you know, we've seen the likes of Prince William and Catherine, Meghan and Prince Harry actually talking about their own mental health issues. And I can guarantee in 2009, there is no way that a senior member of the royal family would have shared their most intimate mental health issues with the world, let alone with the nation. And I think that that has been a dramatic, a dramatic turn of events. However, it comes with a caveat, which is if it wasn't for people like you and the thousands of people that I've had the privilege of working with in Time to Change, you know, people with their own lived experience who we work so closely with to sort of support, um, coach, I suppose, to a certain degree, certainly train people to empower them to have the confidence to speak up about their mental health, sometimes to complete and utter strangers and the types of events that I would organize, where you know we might be in a festival or we might be in a high street or we might be in a shopping center, where you know people with mental health issues are actually engaging with the public who don't know when they first see all these people in t-shirts what it's all about because they think it's some kind of fun fair or something for the kids because you know we'd make it really jolly and positive and hopeful but once they got talking to people with mental health issues and they just shared a little bit of their lived experience we know that that had a profound effect on people because time to change is exceptional in how it um measures the impact of the work that we do you know we would go back you know we would question people you know we had evaluators who would go and question people about that experience you just had talking to somebody and then the evaluators would follow up in three months time and six months time to see how behavior or attitudes have changed and so you know if you look at the the, the the vast amount of research that time to change has done you can actually see where the increase has been so much so that, you know, somewhere almost like six million people's attitude has been changed and consequently their behaviour over the last decade or so. And that, for me, is the most remarkable thing. But, you know, I have to congratulate our champions because if it wasn't for ordinary people speaking up, you know, you wouldn't have the business leaders, the politicians, members of the royal family actually being so open and honest about their own mental health issues. So, you know, I would always congratulate and thank the thousands of Chance Change champions that I've worked with because they're the ones, they're the, the, the driving dynamo, the energy behind this social movement and which has made the change that we're all benefiting from now because so many more people are talking about mental health issues. Yeah, and again, you know, I kind of stand by everything that you've just said there. You know, lived experience is, is something that we have forgotten about when it comes to mental health you know I talk about very much reminding people that mental health is about being human you know mental health isn't always struggling with a mental illness struggling with a mental disorder you know and and I kind of talk about my perception of mental health growing up was you know fed to me by the media straight jackets padded cells personalities like let's stay away from that and and actually what it is, is exactly as you've said there, it's it's about being a human and, and having emotions. And some of us will struggle more than others, but 
hearing people's lived experience will open up our horizons to to what people experience and what people go through and like you said i think you've done that amazingly at time to change and and you know yourself i know you're obviously vocal about your own mental mental health as well um and and it's 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 really needs to to kind of be done more right and and the difficulty there is how do we encourage people to continue talking like and i know you've done a lot of work with champions right and i know you know kind of how that works and it'd be good to kind of dive into that a little bit deeper but you know how do we encourage people to start talking about their mental health so how do we encourage well by really by doing what we're doing you know podcasts like 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 this you know getting the message out doing the splendid work that you're doing um you know the stuff that i do in my spare time on twitter and facebook and linkedin where you know i see a fantastic campaign or i see a fantastic message and i send it out i mean this morning um a, a really good example was a, a group a, a community group i'm involved with suddenly on this whatsapp people were getting a bit bit upset and it was all like oh this is really unpleasant and so rather than get embroiled in the arguments that were going on i just posted some really nice images about, you know, being, you know, fry about, you know, kindness, you know, let's be kind to each other and really try to just pop in, you know, just a few gentle messages to remind people that actually we're all good people. We can have differences, but, you know, we don't have to make those differences into a fight, you know? Mm. Um, and it was really interesting because I was getting some really positive feedback. So, you know, people really did benefit from that. I love that I think, as well because I'm um, sorry, Keith, I love that because, you know, sometimes when we're, when we're, talking about stigma we expect a quick change or we expect a big like massive impact and and actually as you've said resharing something on twitter or posting it to your facebook or you know adding some kindness to a conversation you know or catching someone if they're maybe you know using the wrong language or whatever you know not judging them but just kind of trying to re-educate them in a, a kind way like all of those small changes has a big impact right and it's and you know like you say it's, it's something that we can all do like what you've just shared there is something that we can all do and and we all have that personal impact that we can make right and you know you don't have to be a mental health expert you know this is the thing i'll give you an example i won't name the person because you know like it wouldn't be fair but you know a really good mate of mine got really upset with me over text this week and I had no idea I'd said something which I thought was jokey and innocent you know we, we, we have you know talk about banter and all this kind of stuff two blokes having a bit of a, a go at each other and he sort of came back to me and you know with a bit of abuse <laughs> and I thought okay I'm not going to deal with this I'm going to close the iron door I'll never speak to him again <laughs> and all this sort of thing. that was my reaction and then I sort of went away and made a cup of tea and I thought there's something going on here because this is really unusual. And I went back to him, I said, are you okay? On text, I text him, I said, are you okay? You know, cause you know, I'm really sorry and I apologize immediately. If I have upset you, I am deeply sorry because you know, that's not the sort of person I am. I wouldn't even hurt an enemy. It's just not in me to hurt somebody and especially a mate. So what's going on? And then, of course, it all comes out, you know, he's stressing about his job, just, you know, bought a new house, you know, got kids, there's this, there's this, there's COVID, there's school, you know, home tutoring, all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, I think you need to get some help. Mm. I said, you know, why don't you make an appointment, see your doctor and talk to him about that. 
And he comes back to me, says, well, what, what, what do I say to the doctor? What do I say to the doctor? So I'm there clicking away, click, 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 click. Found some great links for him. I said, look, there's a fantastic, I found these fantastic questions you can ask your doctor. I'm not, a men- you know, I'm not a mental health expert, but what I can do is find, okay, let's join, let's join these dots together. There's a fantastic list of questions. Talk to your doctor about this. I said, you know, there is medication, but there's also alternatives. There's talking therapies. You like running, you like being out in the open doors. There's lots of other things. So, you know, really talk to him and really, you know, all this. Anyway, um, get a message from him last night saying, I took your advice, saw the doctor. He said this, this, and this, and this is what he's, you know, I've got mental exhaustion and he's advised this, this, and this. And it's like, brilliant. I love and, it. You know, like, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a doctor. I do have empathy. And I do have understanding. And also, you know, I've got over a decade's experience now of working with people with mental health issues, sometimes really, really serious mental health issues. Uh, but what I have learned is to have an understanding of how to support people yeah. and uh, not to dismiss or not to ignore and to inquire. And, and in time to change that, we, we had this campaign called Ask Twice, which <laughs> I use all the time. And Keith, seriously, I, was about, I was about to say this, Keith. I was about to say that. Ask twice that it really does it, it works and I, I've used it so many times where you know that British thing where oh, oh how are you oh I'm fine no no really how are you oh yeah I slept really badly last night I fell out with the wife oh. and suddenly you know you start you know just through conversation but also being willing to listen not yeah. to say oh okay bye and off it's like you've made the commitment you've asked the question you've asked it twice then you're going to be prepared to listen. Yeah. And the other thing I've learned as well is that I don't have to have the answers. Mm-hmm. Actually, just listening. Yeah. That you know that in itself, and certainly in my in my life, in you know in my personal life, when I've had problems, sometimes it's a question of me picking up the phone and just getting it out. Yeah. Just getting it out. I don't want to be judged. I actually don't want to be told what to do either, to be honest, because, you know, how could how could I tell you what to do? I can make suggestions, you know, like suggesting seeing a doctor, suggesting a few websites. That's fine. But I would never tell you what to do because I'm not in your shoes. So how would I know? I don't know yeah. what's going on at home. I don't know what's going on at work. But what I can do is be prepared to listen to you. And, you know, if I can, just at least signpost to where you might get some professional help. Yeah, and then you know it's it's up to you. You're preaching, kid. You're preaching. It's 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 honestly. Um, oh God, do I sound like a preacher? I don't mean to. Preach. No, you know, to me, it's like yeah, 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 yeah. You know, everything is it's, it's it's honestly. Whenever I whenever I um do my talks, I I, I mention ask, listen, signpost. You know, and yeah. and I kind of say, look, look, this is not me teaching you to be a qualified therapist, right? This is me giving you the confidence, the tools to have more conversations with people. And what that surrounds is ask, listen, signpost. Um, and I say, you know, the biggest mistake I made with my dad, the biggest mistake that I continue to make with my children, um, because again, it's natural, is ask, listen, solve. Instead of ask, listen, signpost, I go ask, listen, solve. And, you know, my dad is that example is ask him if he starts to talk to me, I listen. And then, dad, you got nothing to be depressed about. Why don't we go for a run? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And I'm trying to take that that pain away. And, you know, when I was in that situation at 21, um, like you said, last thing I wanted was someone telling me what to do. You know, all I wanted was that ear, that that compassion, that non-judgment and that, you know, hope. Oh, we can get through this. You need to go and see this person. And whenever I talk about the ask section, 
always, always talk about ask twice. Like, I don't know who come up with that um, as a campaign, but honestly, it's the reason why I spoke to my therapist at 21 or whatever it was, she asked me twice, you know, the reason why I've got so many people around me to talk about how they feel is because I've asked them twice. And it's literally, as you've said, you know, how are you? I'm fine. It's just that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, you've been withdrawing yourself from sort of situations, you know, I might be overthinking this, but are you sure you're okay? Like that just gives them like, oh, this person actually cares. He's got time. He wants to listen. Um, and yeah, kind of, as you've said, it's, it's just giving people those tools, like you've just said, of you're not going to have to be a therapist here. You've just got to be someone who can have these conversations. That's all it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that Ask Twice campaign. Do you know who come up with that? I'd, I'd love to meet them. Well, I mean, there's a whole team uh, within Time to Change that, uh, you know, the social marketing team that would come up with those mm -hmm. ideas. And also, you know, certainly in, in, in the most recent years, we've worked with Ogilvy. I can't take credit for those, um, for, for coming up with that stuff. But, you know, I have used them both professionally within my work and also personally, you know, like um, I ask people in my local Sainsbury's, you know, when I go to Sainsbury's, because especially when I moved to the East End, because I didn't know anybody. Mm. And so I used to just, and also, because, you know, I need to practice. If I'm if I'm trying to coach people with lived experience, how to have those conversations with complete strangers, I, I've got to be good at it myself, you know, because we, mm -hmm. we want people to be confident and, and be able to do it. And so that's what I would do for practice was I just ask complete strangers. I mean, it's sort of quite easy in a supermarket or in a shop because, you know, that people are there to sort of help you. But I can remember the first time I did ask somebody how they were and they looked at me <laughs> and was like looking around and then, no, no, I'm, I'm genuinely interested. How are you? Oh, you know, I've been looking after a kid. I've just come on. I've got another seven hours. I said, well, you know, make sure you drink plenty of water. Make sure you have a break. You know, all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Their managers must have thought I was insane. I don't know. But uh, certainly, you know, it's for me, what the reward was, was when I go into that supermarket now and those staff see me, they always say, hello, how are you? So, mm -hmm. you know, it does, you know, it pay, there's payback. You know, it's worth yeah. so it's just a little bit of investing your time and energy in people. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about um, yeah, hundred percent. I want to talk about the champions because I know that was a big part of your role at Time to Change. And I did, um, I did, I did a piece for Time to Change uh, around lived experience. But I also did. I can't remember what it was called, but it was almost like a, a social media boot camp for the champions. And I, I came in and I spoke about like you know vlogging and um, you know YouTube and all of that. And I, I love, I love talking about that stuff anyway. And and to meet all of these individuals that were wanting to talk about their story was really, really powerful. And and obviously, you know, with the company that you know I run, Every Mind, we we go into workplaces, we help them with their strategy, we try and sort of eradicate that workplace stigma, you know, which exists in and outside of of work um and, and it's funny as you was talking you know a lot of the stuff that you do with time to change is, is very much what we do you know it's about like creating champions in the business that drive the agenda of mental health it's not just coming from hr and the company it's about you know making it about lived experience and getting people to see it in a different way and and, and asking twice and all of that and but one of the biggest questions that i get is um you know firstly how do we support those champions and and secondly you've probably heard this are we going to open up a can of worms? You know, are we are we going to make more issues if start people start talking about mental health? So, in your role of obviously, as you say, you know, managing champions, what advice can you give from a business point of view? If someone wants to create uh, some champions in the business, is there any sort of takeaways that they can have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, 
first and foremost as well, I think that group you're talking about, I think they were our younger champions that, that yeah. were involved in those boot camps, which is a fantastic idea. We did similar things with older, older champions. You know, we really sort of coached them how to speak to individuals at big public events, but also speak out. So, you know, we had them speaking at conferences and that kind of thing. And also, I think the important thing as well is that those champions were involved as well as, as we formulated and evolved everything that we do in time to change so even, even a training program you know get feedback from people involve them in the training as well i mean that's that's the other thing because so the sorts of things that i would would advise is lived experience is always powerful you know mental health has really benefited from people being brave enough and what i'm seeing now is that lived experience is also popping up in other issues as well where people are seeing the value for it I think the key thing from anybody who's working with people with lived experience is to ensure that there's sort of like a, some kind of security and safeguarding issues and so risk assessments, those sorts of things. And also in preparing champions for the positives that they may get mm -hmm. from speaking out about their lived experience, but also some of the negatives as well. I mean, in the early days, I mean, we did a whole series of like short films and DVDs where I tended to play the villain, <laughs> yeah, pointing and being discriminative, 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 being prejudiced, that's an easy word for me to say, being prejudiced against somebody who, who's suddenly in my face trying to talk to me about time to change. And, uh, you know, we do all sorts of scenarios, but they were really useful because it sort of at least allowed people to sort of see that through, for example, a video. But then we would do role play as well so that people, you know, would be put in that uncomfortable situation where somebody may say something that's, you know, hurtful or damaging but we also taught people how to extract themselves from those sorts of conversations in a very polite way in a business-like way so that you know that the people weren't going to actually inflame a situation but we also had other safeguarding things as well like we had a secret code where uh, like the t-shirt I'm wearing now which is a black t-shirt with time to change on it that was really to sort of distinguish not to say that we were staff, but that we were people who could come in and help if there was a problem at a big event. Because what we found at the start was, oh, go and talk to the guy in the white T-shirt. Well, which guy? Because everybody's in a white T-shirt. So, you know, we quickly learned we need to have, you know, different T-shirts for, for, for people like the event manager or whatever, like, like I was doing. And we would, you know, so we created ways of little signals where, you know, always we would always keep an eye out on our champions at an event. And if we thought that somebody was having difficulty, we would intervene, I would intervene. And I, simply by saying, oh, I've got a phone call for you. And if the person wanted to get out of the conversation and say, oh yeah, I'll go and take it. Well, do you wanna go and take it in the marquee just over there in the re at the rest, rest point or whatever. And then I would take over or somebody else would take over that conversation with that difficult person. So, you know, it's about sort of building sort of safeguarding also ensuring at the end of an event, and I've, I've experienced this myself, you know, like doing an event is exhausting, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, I've been on site at 6 a.m. in the morning and, you know, you're getting home at midnight. I mean, it's exhausting, it's hard work. And what we would always do, and again, I think this was, um, that this was an idea that came from a champion who said, really, you know, you're fantastic at doing briefings before the event, but actually what would be really nice is at the end of the event, rather than just saying, thank you, bye, actually do a debrief so that people felt that, you know, so you could put closure on, on, on that day. And if there was anything that had upset somebody during the day and it hadn't been resolved, to sort of try and resolve that before sending people away. And like, I'd always end by saying, you know, please, you know, maybe not recommend having a nice hot, you know, nice drink or whatever, but, you know, 
do something nice for yourself. What are you going to do tonight? You're going to have a nice meal, hot bath, maybe hot chocolate, just something, or phone a friend, you know, um, just so that, that we hadn't, we, we didn't leave people just hanging there after, after the event, that they, that they felt that there was always somebody they could talk to or contact after the event if there were any underlying issues that hadn't been resolved. Yeah. And I love that. And I think that just goes to show, you know, with your experience that there's so much more that goes into something like implementing champions into a business than just saying, we have 10 champions, you know, and then that's it. And, and that's the biggest downfall that I see. And, and something that I always push back on, it's, you know, the same as mental health first aiders, you know, or we've got, you know, we've got mental health first aiders. It's like, okay, what are you doing to support them? What are you doing to make sure that they're protected? You know, what are you make, doing to make sure all of that? So, um, as you said, almost in a way, it's that if you've got champions in the business, let's use them, these passionate people that want to drive that lived experience and kind of drive that in the business. But, you know, at the same time, it's massively important that they're supported, that they've, as you said, got that kind of like debriefs when they're kind of having those conversations. Um, and it's, it's massively important, like as you say about the, as, as the part of it that I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as I share my story, you know, that vulnerability that you share, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation. Now, if someone's very negative to that, you know, you've got to be in the right headspace to be able to deal with that negativity. But, but on the flip side of that, you know, what I found, I'm sure what you found is when you're vulnerable, other people want to be vulnerable. And, and all of a sudden you've got a queue of people just offloading to you. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I've never told my wife this. I don't know why I'm telling you this. And, and you're taking it, you're taking it, you're taking it, you're taking it. And that that took me a good, I'd say a good two and a half years of, of being able to, I don't like the word detach, but just listen, but not take it home at me, you know, when the event had finished. And I think that's something that, as you say, champions need to learn a lot of as well. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we did at mine was vicarious trauma so that you know because sometimes hearing somebody else's story can can have a negative impact on the individual hearing that story yeah so we, we were even very mindful about how much champions should or shouldn't share with complete strangers members of the public because we have no idea who these people are you know they're, they're out shopping or they're at their festival mm -hmm. we never know what what my story is going to do in a way it sort of reflects back to the story i talked about my friend where you know i was sort of criticizing him about something because oh you know you've got nothing. literally it was like you've got nothing to worry about you've got this this and this you know and i'm stuck at home on my own blah 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 uh, but the thing is that that bit of fun actually triggered something because i yeah. wasn't aware that there's something going on there so you know it's really important that we're very careful about what we share mm -hmm. and i think the other thing as well is really valuing champions i mean you know i, I think we did get really really good at times changing certainly in community really looking after our champions where you know we came up somebody came up with an idea of a certificate and i can remember thinking but it's a certificate what you know is that really going to i can't tell you the joy Mm. But the feedback you get when somebody gets in, we would, and you know, we, we, we printed them ourselves, but you know, we had it nicely designed, have individuals' names put on them. And I can't tell you the joy that people had from that, the feedback that we got was amazing. And you think, well, you know, that didn't cost, that cost hardly anything. That cost a bit of time, mm. a bit of color print and a bit of card. And 
you know, it was worth it. It was so valuable to sort of do those things, to really show that you, you value and you're saying thank you. In the same way where, you know, we'd have focus groups. I had a, a community um, engagement advisory panel and, uh, you know, we had a cake and we invited Sue Baker, the then director of Tangent Changes, to come along to this group of champions. And of course, people are really thrilled. It's like, oh my God, it's Sue Baker, you know, the Sue Baker. But actually, you know, that kind of investment and, and valuing our champions is really, really, I mean, it, it pays dividends because, you know, people want to be involved. They want to support time to change. They want to be part of this social movement. But also, you know, we were able to, you know, very simple thing of getting into Sue's diary, coming over. I had a cake made, it was decorated. We had some photos people felt really really good and that we really valued their input and I think that's the other thing as well is that you know at the core of time to change you know like you talked about the ask twice campaign now I don't know which individuals were involved but there would have been champions in focus groups mm -hmm. they would have fed back on that just as there were uh, champions involved in the website design that they focus group and test that feedback the same with the time to change champions podcast you know that that had at its very core champions all the way through i consulted with so many people on that involved so many people and when i was designing it um i think it was david roper said oh you need to have ollie alexander which you know as it happens ollie's really big now mm -hmm. but um as a pop star you know you thought oh he's a really nice guy. and i'm saying david fantastic but the stars of my show of this show for time to change are actually the champions yeah. so i don't want that celebrity bit coming in because actually the, the, the people that are most important are the champions. It's not me, you know, um, it's the people whose lived experience I want to share, um, not just for the, the details of their, of their lived experience, because actually that's, you know, just to say I have lived experience, I think it's quite a powerful thing to say mm -hmm. uh, publicly, but more about how people use that, you know, to drive their passion, you know, their mini dynamo, the energy, you know, that we, that, that we, we were able to harness. And, and really, you know, those are, you know, those fantastic champions are the ones that have been spreading and embedding anti-stigma work right across the country in the hubs and in, in, in their uh, um, champion campaign groups that we set up. You know, we, we sort of set up groups right across the country so that they would feed back into the whole Time to Change programme. Yeah. I mean, I think nothing it's... was produced in Time to Change that didn't involve people with lived experience. It's amazing. And it's, 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 it's honestly just... It's so refreshing to hear and it's so sad <laughs> that it's ending. Um, and I'm sure it's sadder for you because you've been there for a very long time. Um, and it's just, you know, I think if anyone's listening to this or watching this that, that you know, works within a business or, or whatever it is and, and they're talking about, you know, implementing more, I always say it's unsexy. No one wants to talk about it. It's not quick, but you have to tackle stigma first because you know you implement training, you implement an app, you implement whatever. If stigma still exists, no one is touching it. No one is using it because they feel judged. They don't want to talk about it. And and as you've seen from that growth and the results that you've had from time to change, you know, it wasn't just one campaign that you guys did, you know, Ask Twice was a very successful campaign in my eyes, very memorable. There was other ones that I remember, you know, I'm sure there was plenty that didn't work, but it was like chipping away at it, you know, the same with champions. And, and it's just that long period of time where I believe times change have moved that conversation on, right? And, and the way I see stigma is I'm going to keep talking about it until I'm a great granddad. And then, and then maybe, you know, the conversation might have moved on even more because it is going to take that time, isn't it? You know, you spoke about your, 
your almost parents approach to mental health and how much that impacted you and but but yeah i think any business you have to address stigma right you have to address stigma before you implement anything um i'm, I'm conscious of time but there's so much that i could ask you keith we'll have to pick this up on another call i'm sure um i wanted to i want to touch on if you don't mind a little bit about that that personal experience um that you went through you know how, how did that impact you you know especially sort of going through you know both parents in a way you know having that that struggle how much did that impact you growing up yeah it's, it's a good one isn't it because i mean there was a lot of a lot of mental health problems in my family um and i suppose it, it sort of sparked off i mean i had a lovely family um, i do want to say that my parents were, were wonderful uh, but our lives sort of changed when i was about 13 we been away to Mallorca the first time I'd ever been out of the country went to Mallorca with my parents had a wonderful holiday <clears throat> but when we were at the airport coming back we were due to be picked up with um picked up at Gatwick airport because we, we flew from Gatwick by my mom's eldest sister Monty Marion and her husband but when we phoned we discovered that she wasn't going to be there at the airport she was actually up north my family were from County Durham uh, my mother's family and um long story short one of my mom's sisters was killed <clears throat> mm -hmm. which really sort of I mean you know my mom had to have oxygen on the airplane I mean it was awful 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 and I think probably that was I think I think my mom probably always had mental health issues but we didn't know but that was the the, the major trigger the death of my aunt Edna really um, and then our lives were never ever really the same after that and uh you know the, the, that family was broken up we had a we had a suicide unfortunately in the family um, which was my cousin john which again very much sort of disturbed all of us and at one point my cousin jane came to live with us because um it was felt that she, she would be better in, in our family so and jane had mental health issues too so it's like it's it's always been there but it's really weird when I think about it it's like it never really sort of talked about it I was aware of it and you know I'd go to psychiatric uh, hospitals for visits and all of those sorts of things but we didn't talk about it in the way that people talk about mental health today mm. and I suppose my mental health was impacted by a number of things and it's really weird because I mentioned Ollie Alexander earlier and it's a sin, but I'm, I'm also realizing that since I've watched this TV series about the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, of course, I worked in HIV and AIDS for 13 years at National AIDS Trust. So I worked through all of that sort of, um, well, from the late 80s, actually, in volunteering and then in the NHS and then work at National AIDS Trust, sort of seeing the impact of AIDS, which I've, I've realized I've not really dealt with um, from a mental health perspective. Um, because watching it's a sin has triggered so many memories and it's okay I mean I'm, I'm completely well but you know I was completely shocked I watched three episodes in one go and it was just like watching my, and I know lots of other people have said this but it's like watching my own story on mm. TV, you know like the major character Ollie leaves for London in September 19, 1981 to do drama I left Leeds in 1981 September to do drama and I'm sitting there watching this thinking has Russell T Davies been watching my life you know and all this sort of thing so there's that aspect of it but I suppose my my major what really triggered uh, my mental health problems was the death of my father in 2004 and I think that was an experience which and it was a you know he, he had pancreatic cancer um, but even so you know um, the, the impact of his death was 
I just you can't prepare for it as, as, as you know Paul you know you can't prepare for losing your dad um, in any circumstance um, and that yeah that sent me a little I would say do lie I know I thought I was going mad I did do the right thing go see my GP who was amazing absolutely fantastic and uh, sent me for some psychiatric tests and I had to see a psychiatrist and that was a bit weird and you know the stigma I was seeing a psychiatrist he thinks I'm nuts and basically what what they diagnosed was was, was depression through bereavement it was grief mm. and I went on to some medication called Siroxat and I don't like taking pills but I I, I felt I just needed that bridge. <clears throat> and then I had to wait um, for counselling. Um, but thankfully, I didn't have to wait that long. And I, I went to a place called Cruise that specialises in bereavement counselling. And that was, yeah, that was pretty amazing. The negative side of all of that was that I, when my father was dying, we, we had him at home because um, the prognosis was six weeks. He actually lived for seven and I'd agreed with my employer, you know, that I would work from home, which soon became impossible. I mean, it was just impossible because my father was at home mm. downstairs and he was dying. And one day I got a call and I'd, and I'd taken, you know, compassionate leave. I'd taken all my annual leave. Um, and then I got a call from my a former boss saying, oh, we might have to start looking at cutting your salary, which completely like, you know, it was the last thing I needed to hear when I knew that my dad was going to be dead in a few weeks time. And we were really, really lucky because we had this palliative care unit in Leeds and um, the nurse said to me, what's wrong with you? Because they were all, also there to look after the rest of the family and all this. Stuff like that. And I told her what I, the conversation I just had. I, I'm, I was in a terrible state. It was awful to think that you know, I'm going to lose my income. Plus, I'm, I'm not even at home. I'm 200 miles from my home because I live in London. I'm going to lose my income and my dad's dying. I mean, this is like how, you know, what a horrible situation to be in. So she told me to go see the, my doctor's GP. I went to the GP, of course, he signed me off sick, which was A, the best thing to do because it meant that I was then, you know, seeing a doctor and talking about my mental health issues. But also it meant that, 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 that my employer couldn't touch me, mm. you know, because I had a sick note and all that kind of stuff. And I, my father died on the 19th of July. I was back at work on the 6th of September. It's, it's embedded in my head because it wasn't that long a time to be off. And I carried on with my work. I was very productive. And then the following March, there were all these questions about, oh, where do you see yourself going with this role? And, you know, I was saying, oh, I want to be head of communication. I want to be, you know, director of campaigns, all this kind of stuff. And then over a lunch with the CEO, I was told, um, oh, actually, we're going to have to let you go. And it's like, are you joking? But you know what? It was the best possible thing because, uh, cut a long story short, I was a, a, a company that designed websites for me, phoned me up. I was doing my last event and it was at the TUC and I was actually just sitting all my guests down for lunch because you know, we train them to lunch. And I get a call saying, oh, we've got a job, but you know, there's an issue about where it is. And I said, well, where is it? Is it Manchester, Dewsbury? This is what I'm thinking. And they said, Sydney or Melbourne? I said, Australia, um, can I call you back like this? Yeah. Anyway, uh, within a couple of weeks, I was flying down to Sydney. Uh -huh. And uh, that weekend, my new boss took me out on his yacht and we're sailing across Sydney Harbour towards the Middle Harbour Yacht Club. That was his yacht club where he was taking me for lunch. And we had fish and chips and beer, sitting on a veranda, watching boys on um, surfboards. And I thought, I have died and gone to heaven. 
And even though I was still suffering with mental health issues and running out of my medication, Australia for me gave me a completely whole new lease of life because I went there not knowing anybody. I very quickly realized that I had to say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. Going yachting, going to the racing, going to the football, going to the cricket, going to a complete stranger's barbecue, Australia. I just said yes to everything. <laughs> and I, I seriously, th I know it's a dramatic thing, but I, I think that really seriously saved my life because it, it was just, it's just what I needed. And the beauty about it was that my father always wanted to be a, a, ten, a $10 pom. And he wanted to emigrate um, when my sister, it was before I was born, but then my mom got pregnant with my sister. And so they decided not to. Mm. And so it really felt as if I was somehow fulfilling something for my dad. Yeah. In that brief period, I was there for six months in Australia working. And I just had the most wonderful time and have made lifelong friends who I see, who I you know do this Skype with them and all that kind of stuff on a regular basis. And that really, really changed my life. That's an amazing story. And it, it also is very representative of, of just hold on. You know, it's like I, I, everyone, you know, when, when you're in that place, just hold on because you don't know what's around the corner. And it's about just getting through every day, every hour, every minute, because if you can just hold on, you don't know, you might be on a yacht in Australia in, in the next month or two. And, and that's a, a perfect example of that, isn't it? And, um, you know, that situation from your employer is something that we still hear today. And, and I'm sure, as you know, and we haven't got time to go into it, it happens way too often. And, and that's something that we're, we're wanting to change. The big difference with mind was that when my mother died and, you know, and I, I mean, they were incredibly supportive and I'd been up in Leeds and I'd, I'd driven back to London on the Thursday night saying, I'll see you next weekend because they were due to send my mom home. She was, she was okay. I get home very late on the Thursday, well, it would have been the Friday morning. On the Friday morning, I'm at work and my sister phones me and says, you've got to come back, she's dying. Oh my God, it was awful. And anyway, went back to, to Leeds and, and basically my sister and I sat with my mom for five nights, five days, completely, we didn't leave her side. And my mom died and uh, we had the funeral. The difference was, was that I was back at work at mine within a couple of weeks and I was supported, you know, I had, you know, the director coming, putting their arms around me, giving me a hug, um, people being kind and supportive. And I think that, I think that was the major difference between two employers. And, you know, the other employer was a charity as well. Uh, but obviously, you know, one would expect to get that kind of support from Mind. Mm -hmm. But they did. They, they really did um, support me. And I was back at work and, and, you know, getting on with things and functioning as well as I could because I had that support. And I think that's, it's the same thing with any kind of mental health. If that support is there and it's genuine, then even when you're struggling and you're still not well, fully recovered as it were, but you can still contribute and you can still get on and give and do your work as long as that, as long as it's, you know, that understanding is there, you know, that those, um, that support is given, that, you know, that, that, you know, you check in, that the manager checks in on how people are doing. I mean, one of the things I always do in a one-to-one -one at the start of a one-to-one -one is check in with, with, with my line report. How are you? How are you doing? Mm -hmm. Anything of concerning you? Um, and it all sounds a bit oh, touchy-feely, all a bit, but do you know what? Why, why, why would you not do that? Yeah. Why would you not inquire? Your most valuable resource in the workplace are the people that you employ. 
And if you're not prepared to support them when they're having a rough time, then you shouldn't be doing a managerial role because that, unfortunately, is part. It's not just about producing stuff and doing events or writing articles or designing websites or doing podcasts. It's about giving the time to people to let them know that you understand or you try to understand and that you want to support them to be the best they possibly can can be. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that you know, you said at the start point, you know, we're all human beings and we get things wrong. But you know, if our attitude is about supporting and helping. And especially if you're working around mental health issues, if, you know, if we can't practice what we preach, then, you know, why are we doing this work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's like you say, it's, it's the check-in is, is you have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? If you don't check in, what's the alternative? And, and I sadly know, and you sadly know that the alternative could be quite bad. And it's, it might seem, you know, something that you're not used to, it might seem wishy-washy, it might seem a bit, oh, I don't need to check in on that person. But, you know, as you say, what's the alternative, Keith? Um, as I say, I, well, I could talk about this forever with you. And, and and also, you know, on behalf of the team, we all wanted to kind of say a thank you to you and, and everyone at Times Change for the kind of incredible work that that you've done. Like I said, when I heard the news, I was shocked. Um, I reached out to, to Joe, you know, we, we did an LBC interview to go out and um, again, just kind of seeing her intent of what she wanted to do in, in time to change was was amazing. So it's 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 definitely a sad ending, but I'm sure for you it's it's the beginning in some ways as well. I'm sure you'll you'll continue to push on as you are, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm involved in. I've just become a trustee of mental health, and our whole remit is about carrying on. Really, I mean, we set up during um, whilst time to change it was sort of set up. I've actually, got a couple of champions who've um, who founded it. Davy Shields being one of them. And the idea is that you know we will continue to sort of tackle and challenge stigma and discrimination. That's our key thing. And of course, there are thousands of champions all around the country. They're not all going to stop. You know, I mean, I, certainly you know there are people in Liverpool, yeah. Bristol, right across the country. All the hubs. You know, we, we we created 38 hubs in cities and rural communities right across the country. And those people are dedicated. I you know I follow people all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing as well, Paul. You know, nurture, nurture your champions, even mm-hmm. especially when you don't need anything from them, because it's really important to keep those connections, keep those networks alive. Because you know, champions are the salt of the earth, and they they really have done such wonderful work for time to change and have really carried that message through to the country. Yeah. And they're the ones that I want to thank because they they have actually changed my life for the better. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's it's the impact that, and again, I know you're not going to say you, but the impact you've had with those champions, you know, impacts their life, but how many people have they impacted and influenced from them sharing their story? And that's that's the domino effect of, you know, if you, if you can help one person with lived experience, share, inspire to help others, how many families are you impacting as well? So um, my team have also said, Keith, and, and, and uh, you know, this is, this is just for you. I don't know whether you eat chocolate, but what we want to do is we, we want to send you a, a Cadbury Hero chocolates box because you're a hero. Um, <laughs> it's not my idea. Just now, but no, we wanted to give you a gift and we didn't know what. So I might lose weight, mate. I mean, I put on so well, much weight. Vegan there. alternatives or, or 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 low sugar alternatives now, but um, oh. the, the the hero in the in the Cadbury's chocolate was, of course, there's other chocolates that you can use, but no, we wanted to send that out to you just as like a little a little sort of gimmicky thank you because um yeah like we've been sort of as we say a couple of people in the team have been sort of admiring the work at Time to Change and and you know when I said about you 
we wanted to kind of you know jump on this podcast and hear from you as well so i um, just kind of want to sort of end it there keith because like i said i'm conscious of time but thank you so much for taking the time out today to join us on this, on this podcast and is there anything that you want to kind of end it with or people where they can find you well i mean what i'd like eventually when we've got our new podcast set up paul is i'd like you to return the favor and come and be a guest on mental health because i'd really like to uh talk to talk, talk more about the work that you're doing because i mean it is incredible because yeah. you're, you're popping up everywhere and um, you know i think it's really important that your story gets gets told with mental health It'd be great yeah. 100% I'm down for it and and hopefully you'll give me some some chocolates in return I know I'm joking um but no thanks Keith I really appreciate sent back I might still be on my diet you know yeah you'll, you'll send me the original box it's like the yeah. gift that you give to someone else or a box of empty wrappers <laughs> yeah. um good stuff thank you Keith all right fella cheers mate